This week's parsha, Parsha's Kisisa, is a very dramatic parsha. A lot of things going on. We know that Cheta Egel is one of the stories in Chumash that is very, very difficult to understand, very hard to appreciate. And as you read Cheta Egel, you come to an understanding that even if somebody were to do such a terrible sin as the Cheta Egel, what's very reassuring afterward is that we come to an understanding that HaKadosh Baruch Hu also says, Vayomer Hashem Salachti Kidvarecha, that even if we've made many terrible mistakes in our lives, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is still willing to turn around and say that he is willing to give us another chance and we can do tshuva and we can have an opportunity to come back. And that is what is very uplifting about this week's Parsha. In the midst of the discussion of everything in this week's Parsha, again, we have a lot of different things going on. The Torah does say the following, Vayomer Hashem al Moshe Leymar, Daber al B'nei Yisrael Leymar, Ach es Shabsosai Tishmoru, you should be Shomer Shabbos. And this is where the phrase Shomer Shabbos comes from. Ach es Shabbosai Tishmoru. Why? Why should you observe Shabbos? Ki osi ladas ki ani Hashem Because this is the sign between ourselves. This is the sign of our relationship. Ladas ki ani Hashem And this is also a way of understanding that I am your God. We find the same phrase, the same verb. Vishamru v'nei Yisrael es what does it mean, Mishamru? What does it mean when we talk about Shabsosai Tishmoru? So this is a very curious word. And in fact, it is picked up by the Arachayim HaKadosh. On Chumash, Parshas Kisisa, Parak Lamed Aleph, Pasuk Tazayin, he writes, what does it mean when it says, Vishamru v'nei Yisrael HaShabbos? If I were to ask you, what does it mean to be a Shomer Shabbos? I think most people would answer the question and say, Shomer Shabbos means somebody who observes Shabbos, somebody who makes sure to guard Shabbos, somebody who makes sure that they don't violate any of the prohibitions on Shabbos, any of the transgressions on Shabbos, that is a Shomer Shabbos, says the Arachayim HaKadosh in Korea. What does it mean to be a Shomer Shabbos? Of course, all of those things are included in what it means to observe Shabbos, but that's not what the term Shomer Shabbos means. Where do we have the verb Shomer before in the Torah? Way back when, in Sefer Bereshis, when HaKadosh Baruch Hu, I'm sorry, when we have the story of Yosef and his brothers, and we're told that there's a lot of uncomfortable feelings between them. And the Torah there says that Yaakov Avinu was waiting. The Aviv Shamar es Hadavar. Yaakov Avinu was waiting. Yaakov Avinu was anticipating. He was seeing what was going to happen. He was waiting on the side in anticipation for how this was all going to play out. Says the Arachayim Hakadosh. What does it mean? It means Mamtin Umetzape Masayavo. Yaakov Avinu was waiting to see what would happen. And so too, what does it mean to be a Shomer Shabbos? What does it mean? It doesn't mean you observe Shabbos. It doesn't mean that you stand up and make sure that you don't violate a transgression. Of course, that could be a part of it, but it goes beyond that. Beyond that, says the Arachayim HaKadosh, we all have an obligation to be mamtin umitzape masai yavo, to wait when the time will come for Shabbos. That's what it means to be a Shomer Shabbos. V'hakavana bazeh. What it means is, When we talk about Shabbos, we shouldn't just look at it in terms of, I only have a few minutes left till Shabbos, what am I going to do? How am I going to finish? What's going to be? Rather, he says, to be mamtin umitzapa, to wait, to be misameach, to be excited. Somebody who gets married, somebody who's having a baby, looks forward with anticipation to the moment when that great moment is going to happen. And therefore, that's what it means to be a Shomer Shabbos, a person who looks forward to Shabbos, not just a person who observes and makes sure not to violate any of the transgressions. That is known to be a very famous Arachayim HaKadosh, even if you don't know any other Arachayim HaKadosh on Chumash, this is probably one that you will encounter somewhere along the way, and it's a very important one to know, because it gives us a little bit of a context of what Shabbos really can be and should be for all of us. I was thinking, if you take that line of reasoning, and you just go a little bit further, where do we have a Pasuk in Tehillim? where we talk about Shmirah, So of course, the simple understanding of that is that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is the one who's the guardian of the Jewish people. But beyond that, it's also maybe that he's the Shomer Yisrael. He is waiting with great anticipation to see when will the Jewish people come back? And when will we have the opportunity to be reunited once again? It's not only that he's the protector and the guardian of the Jewish people, but it's also that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is the one who anticipates, who looks forward, who longs, who yearns for that relationship to be back where it's supposed to be. The Bali Machshava give a mashal when they talk about coming into Shabbos. So they say, imagine you have parents who are from a different generation and they don't have cell phones and they don't use technology well and they're coming from out of town and they tell you that they want to come to you for Shabbos. 
So you don't have the ability to pick them up because it's too much of a trip or because you work on Fridays, whatever it's going to be. You tell them, take the train. We'll have someone waiting for you to pick you up. Not a big deal. This is where you get off. This is the station. And we'll bring you to the house. Fine. The parents get off the train after a long trip. And after they get out at the station, they're looking around, trying to see any of the children here, any of the grandchildren here. Nobody seems to be there. And as they're looking around, they notice, I guess we're going to have to figure out how to get to the house, but we didn't even bother to ask what the address is. We don't know. So let's call them. The problem is we don't have a cell phone. So how do we get in touch? I have to look back at my little calendar here where I have the number written down somewhere. I have to borrow a phone from somebody. And it's very uncomfortable for them. Okay, our kids weren't able to make it. They make a phone call. Kids say, oh, we're so sorry. We forgot all about it. We didn't realize you were coming in a few minutes early. We would have been there on time, but you came in before the time that we thought. So the parents say, not a problem. We'll jump in a taxi. We'll come to the house. They jump in a taxi. They get to the house, waiting outside, banging on the door, ringing the bell. Nobody seems to be around. Nobody's answering. What's happening? Finally, they start shouting and screaming, and somebody calls out from the window. I'm sorry. I'm in the shower. I'm not, I'm not available right now. I'm in the middle of a meeting. I'm on the phone. I can't come downstairs. So you leave your parents waiting outside as it's snowing and raining, and it's freezing cold out. What kind of reception are your parents getting? You're clearly showing that you were not prepared for them to come. How much are they going to want to come next week? Probably won't. They'll look for a better offer because you've showed them what your attitude is toward their visit. Now, of course, you're happy to host them, and of course, while they're in your house, you're gonna be respectful, but there's something to be said for how you make them comfortable in their entry as well. And say, the Bali Machshava, that's what it means when it comes to being a Shomer Shabbos as well. Shomer Shabbos means when Shabbos comes on Friday afternoon, how prepared are we? What does Shabbos feel like when it comes to our homes? What does it mean to Shabbos when they walk into a home and nobody's ready and nobody's showered and the table isn't set and the food isn't ready yet? All of that gives a certain feeling to Shabbos as to how important we feel it is. How much is this a priority in our lives? And how much perhaps do we put it to the back of our minds and say, well, it has to happen, so we're going to make sure it happens, but it's not something we're excited about. It's not something that we have an appreciation for. And perhaps this is the reason why there are many communities that have the custom to say Shir Hashirim on Arab Shabbos. What is that all about? Shir Hashirim, of course, is the love song between the Rebona Shalom, between God and the Jewish people. And what we talk about in Shir Hashirim is Yishakenu Minashikos Pio. We talk about HaKadosh Baruch Hu giving the Jewish people a kiss. That's what it is. Like you wait by the door and you give your parents a kiss who are coming to visit you from a long journey. You're excited to see them. And that's what it means. We hope that through the experience of Shabbos, it will be one where we will feel, not only us, but we feel that it will be reciprocal, that HaKadosh Baruch Hu, in the representation of Shabbos, will also understand that this is Yishakeni Minashikos Pio, that we are going to give each other an embrace, that we are going to give each other an appreciation, and we are going to show how valuable the experience of Shabbos is to all of us. So, what I want to talk about today is not halacha. I want to talk about... Shabbos in general, our perspective towards Shabbos, because I think it's important that we think about it. After all, it is Thursday, and we do observe Shabbos every week. And we have to understand what it is that we are really trying to accomplish when we go through and experience a Shabbos on a weekly basis. So Rav Soloveitchik very often wrote in very stirring, very moving, eloquent terms. And here, he is no different. He writes in his book, Festivals of Freedom, if you look here at number one, he says, as a child... I used to brood for hours over the notion of Hamaldil bin Kodesh le Kodesh. I love how he writes that, that as a child, that's what he thought about. I don't think adults think about the words of Hamavdil bin Kodesh le Chol. Forget about Hamavdil bin Kodesh le Kodesh. But he's very excited about the fact that when you have Yom Tev and Shabbos, one going into the other, so we make Hamdallah, because of course there's going to be a difference in the sanctity when you're going from Shabbos and now you're going to Yom Tev. Of course, you're leaving a very high level of Shabbos and you're going into a little bit of a lower level of Yom Tif. So we do say Havdalah, but we say Hamavdil ben Kodesh le Kodesh. God makes a separation, a distinction between that which is very holy and that which is not as holy as something else. So where do we find that? Actually, where you find that in Chumash is the first time that Havdalah, not the first time, but one of the times that Havdalah is mentioned is when you have Lahavdil ben Kodesh u ben Kodesh HaKadashim. When we talk about in Chumash, that you have to make a paroches that is going to separate between the Kodesh Kadashim, which is the Holy of Holies, and the rest of the Mishkan. Now, does that mean that the rest of the Mishkan is not holy? Of course not. The whole entire edifice, the whole makeup of the Mishkan is all holy. But you need to understand that even within holiness, 
there is something that is on a higher madrega, and there's something that perhaps is on a lower madrega. There's something that is considered more holy, something that is considered less. In fact, the Gemara tells us, what is considered to be holier? If you have a mezuzah versus a pair of tefillin, what is more, what is less? Well, the question that the Gemara asks is, how many partios of the Torah are in each one? And that will determine whether this is considered holier than that. And what do you mean? Tefillin and mezuzah are all the same thing. They're all holy. The answer is yes, they are all holy, but the Sefer Torah, which has many more divrei Torah, many more aspects to it, of course, is going to be considered holier than something else. Why is that relevant to us? Why is that relevant to us? It's relevant to us because, I've used this reference before, every Yid's a big tzaddik, right? Every Yid is wonderful, everyone's great, it's beautiful, maybe, maybe yes, maybe no. All of us are created with the Neshama Tehorah. We say it every morning, Elokai Neshama Shanasatavi Tehorahi, we believe that all of us have a soul, all of us have a spirit, every Jew has something special about them, and of course that is true. But we need to understand that even within our own context, even within our own community, there is Kodesh Kadashim, and there is Kodesh. There are some people in our community who are more prominent and to be respected. And there are other people who, of course, we need to have a respect for everyone. There are other people whose voice and opinion should matter more to us than the voice of our friends or our neighbors. Not everybody has an equal voice in the Jewish community. In fact, the Gemara says in Masechah Shabbos, L'charva Yerushalayim. Yerushalayim was destroyed, as we know. We're still living through Churban Yerushalayim. What does that mean? Yushalayim was destroyed because people lost a sense of understanding between what it means to be a very good person and what it means to be a regular average citizen of the Jewish community. Not everyone's voice is exactly the same. And that is important for all of us as we live in a world where people can make all kinds of comments Everybody seems to be on an equal playing field today, right? When we're on social media, we're on Twitter, we're on Facebook, we're online. And everybody has a right to make a comment even though they're not qualified to make such comments. Even though their comments are really with a lack of education behind them, with a lack of scholarship. But yet we read a comment and we say, hey, that's interesting. What do you mean that's interesting? You have to learn to discern between Kodesh, Kodesh Kadashim. Of course, everybody's opinion should be valued. Everybody has a right to have an opinion on a matter. But how much should I value their opinion in the context of other opinions that are being shared? When we live in an info age, when we live in a generation where there's so much information being put out at us, we have to learn to discern between Katan Vigodam, between Kodesh and Kodesh Kadashim. And that perhaps is what it means when we say, Hamavdil and Kodesh the Kodesh. He writes, I like both. I cherished every spark of holiness. I hated the everyday, the gray, the routine, the workday, the dreariness. So Soloveitchik talks about how special. Shabbos and Yom Tiv was for him, but he understood that Shabbos is considered to be higher and Yom Tiv is considered to be one level down. Now, Shabbos, of course, is something that is very stressful for people. Shabbos is something that is very important that we prepare for. But in another essay, Rav Salavechik speaks about the dreams of Yosef HaTzadik, which seem to have absolutely no connection, no relationship at all to Shabbos. But in essence, when you think about it, there is a very beautiful message that we can take into the experience of Shabbos and the relationship uh, between Shabbos and the weekday as well. So let's go back to the story of Yosef and his dreams. What were Yosef's dreams? Yosef has two different dreams. One dream, as we know, is the dream of Achadasar Kochavim. He has all the stars, the stars and the sun and the moon and everyone's together in that dream. He has a different dream about the cows and about the wheat. And all of them are being mishtachaveh. All of them are bowing down to him. So let's see. I am not a dream interpreter, but the, what, is the, what is the interpretation as of Salavechik of Yosef's dreams? One was of material economic power, of prosperity and opulence. And that vision came true 100%. That was one of Yosef's dreams. When he was talking about the future economy of, he didn't know at the time it was going to be Egypt, but that's what he was dreaming about. The other dream apparently revolved around spiritual greatness, heavenly sweep and heavenly grandeur. Yosef wanted to be powerful in a political sense. He wanted to attain wealth and prosperity. He wanted to be respected by people because of his power, feared by people because of his might. But he also wanted to be great spiritually. He wanted to be loved by people, to be revered by people because of the greatness of his wisdom and his kindness. So if Soloveitchik says, that's the representation of both of these dreams of Yosef. On the one hand, he's dreaming about economic successes. He's dreaming about all of the different 
bundles of wheat that are bowing down to him. That's the economy is going to be very successful. I am going to have major success in my life. On the other hand, he's dreaming about lofty ideas, about stars, the sun, and the moon, and that is about his spiritual side. And he wants that he should be successful in both of those arenas. And I believe that we all have the same kinds of dreams. Or those are the dreams that we should have. Those are the aspirations all of us should want to have. I was having a conversation upstairs with some of the other teachers. What is the goal? What is the aspiration of a young woman who comes to Stern College? Why are you here? Why are you here? Now, some will say I'm here because I don't want to deal with anti-Semitism on college campuses, so I come here. I don't know. Sounds like there are easier ways to get around that. And there are campuses that maybe are safe. That's not the reason to be here. Maybe that's one very small reason to be here, but that doesn't seem to be the real reason to be here. What is the goal? Why are you here? I hope people have thought about that. Your parents are spending a lot of money for you to be here. So why are you here? It's an important question. And I hope the answer is because, yes, many people in the world need a secular education to be able to be successful in the future steps and stages of their lives. But at the same time, we all understand we have two aspirations. We have two dreams. We dream about physical success. We dream about material success. We dream about being able to prosper. We dream about raising a family and being able to do that with a parnasa. And all of that, of course, is very important. But we also dream about other things. We dream about where's our spiritual future? And how are we going to make sure that our spiritual future is going to be strong? How are we investing in the dream of the of the Shemesh and the Areach of spiritual matters? How are we moving toward a goal of pushing ourselves in a direction which is going to be a positive one, not only in the material side, but also in the spiritual side? And that perhaps is what it means when Yosef HaTzadik has these two dreams. The question of Salavechik raises in the next paragraph is, can one person combine both qualities? Can one person fulfill both dreams? Can one person have the dream of the sheaves of economic and military power? And can that same person also have the dream of spiritual greatness, of moral heights, and of communion with God? Yosef was an executive. He paid attention to the hard facts of life. He organized the storage of the food during the seven years of prosperity in Mitzrayim. He divided and then removed the peasants from their land. Could he at the same time be a dreamer? Could he be a visionary? Could he be a spiritual leader who is going to be loved by his people? Are we able to excel in both arenas of our lives? Or do we have to make a choice? Do we have to say either we're going to be totally engaged in spirituality and we're going to be devoid of all the other material successes that some people focus their attention on? Or do we say the opposite? Do we say, no, material success is all that matters to me at the expense of all of my spiritual aspirations? That is the question that Yosef challenges all of us to think about. And I think we do have some seniors in this class who are then going to move on to the next stages of their lives. I think this is a very important concept to think about. What is your dream? What is your aspiration? And what are you doing to make sure that both of those dreams are going to continue to be a strong presence and a strong focus in your lives. Of course, it's not relevant only to seniors. It's relevant to everyone. But I think it is a point to consider. Apparently, Yosef thought that he could combine both. And Cesar Salavechik, I'll be Druish, maybe that's what it means why Yaakov Avinu made him the Ksonas Pasit. Yosef did not live a black and white life. He didn't say either I'm going to put my whole life in the base Medrash and stay there my whole life, or I'm going to be economically successful and put all of my energies there. Yosef was a little bit intricate. He was complicated. He was made up of a lot of different colors. There were a lot of different facets to him. He was a politician. He was a businessman. He was a dreamer. He was a person who understood other people. He was a person who also had spiritual aspirations. And all of that was represented in Exonus Pasim. His father was trying to show him, you are a complex human being. You are a person who has the ability to put it all together. But you need to focus on both of them. You need to understand that both of them are going to be important for your successful future. And that is what Yosef said. And sometimes, as Salavechik said, two different colors clash with each other. Sometimes they get along nicely, but sometimes they clash. And you have to figure out how to live both of those dreams together. It is not always so easy. It is not always so simple. I've said over on many occasions, I don't know if I said it here, Rav Simcha HaKohen Kuk, who is the, the, um, the chief rabbi of Rehobot, Rav Simcha HaKohen Kuk, 
I remember when he came to YU when I was very young, and he said the following, uh, Mashal. He told over the story that there were three Hasidim who were getting together, and what do three Hasidim do when they get together? I don't know, I'm sure they do lots of things. One of the things they do is they tell stories about their Rebbe. Everyone wants to show how his Rebbe is the greatest one. So the first one turns to his two friends and he says, you know, I got to tell you a story. I have to tell you a miraculous story that my Rebbe was once involved with. So on one occasion, my Rebbe was traveling on the horse and buggy. Like every good story in Europe, that's what he was doing. And suddenly it starts pouring. There's a terrifying deluge. Everything is, is flooded everywhere. And of course, the horse and buggy is unable to travel through this kind of weather. But he's stuck in the middle of nowhere. So he gets off of the horse and buggy and he offers a tefillah. And suddenly his tefillah was answered and there's rain to the right, rain to the left, and there's dry in the middle. Amazing, amazing story. Next one says, yeah, it's a nice story, but I'm going to tell you something even greater. On one occasion, my teacher, my Rebbe, was once traveling. He was in the middle of nowhere and he saw it was getting very close to nightfall. It's not like they had electric lights outside, so he didn't know what to do. So he gets off the horse and buggy. He doesn't want to be stuck here in the middle of the night. And he offers a prayer, he offers a tefillah, and suddenly his prayers were answered, and there's dark to the right, dark to the left, and sunlight in the middle. It keeps traveling. Third one says, both of you are very impressive, but I'm going to tell you a story that's going to blow your mind. My teacher was once traveling, and it was getting very close to Shabbos. And we know that you're not allowed to travel on Shabbos. But he was stuck in the middle of nowhere. So he gets off of the horse and buggy. He offers a tefillah. And suddenly, it was Shabbos to the right, Shabbos to the left. And it was weekday in the middle. So he kept going. If you didn't get that, you're sleeping. So, Rav Simcha Cohen Cook told the story. And he said, the truth is, when he comes to Manhattan, and he looks around, as he, he was collecting money, he was traveling around. He said, as I go through the city, the streets of Manhattan, I see this place is disgusting. Look what's going on in the streets. And this was 25 years ago. Imagine what he would say today. You see all kinds of people. What are they involved with? What are they doing? What are they busy with? And I see this hole to the right, hole to the left. And what's amazing is that the Jewish people have figured out how to make Shabbos in the middle. That's the challenge of life. The greatest miracle of them all is figuring out how to live in the world that we live in which is hold to the right, hold to the left. Everywhere you turn, every time you go on the internet, you see hold to the right, hold to the left, all the ads, everything. You're overwhelmed with so much hold, but to figure out how to carve a path of Shabbos in the middle, that is the greatest miracle. That is what the Jewish people aspire to do. That is what we try to accomplish. In fact, the Gemara says a story, the Gemara tells a story about the Shmonim Talmidim of Hillel Azakim. So the Gemara tells us that Hillel had 80 students. Who were these 80 students? Says the Gemara, 30 of them were on the level of Moshe Rabbeinu. Not bad. It's a pretty, pretty august group of students. 30 of them were on the level of Yoshua Benun. Not bad. They're also pretty good. So in higher mathematics, you had 80 students, 30 like Moshe Rabbeinu, 30 like Yoshua Benun. How many are we left with? 20. So what were the other 20? Says the Gemara, somewhere in between. Somewhere in between Yoshua ben and Moshe Rabbeinu, we didn't know which category to put them in, but they're somewhere in the middle. Pretty amazing group of students, says the Gemara. And who was the greatest of these students? Anybody knows? Yonas Amenuziel. Yonas Amenuziel was the greatest of these 80 Talmidim. And who was the lowest, who was the least impressive of all the Talmidim, says the Gemara, the great Rabbi Yochanan Menzakai. Rabbi Yochanan Menzakai, who grew up in his life to be the leader of the Jewish community the unequivocal leader of the Jewish community. He was the weakest of the students of Hillel Azak, and the greatest was Yonas Amenuziel, as we famously know him from his commentary on Chumash. Okay? Now says the Gemara. Let's hear a little bit about these students. So let's talk a little bit about Rabbi Yochanan Menzakeh, who unfortunately was the weakest. The Gemara goes into a whole description of what Rabbi Yochanan Menzakeh was able to do. Anyone who ever sent a question from anywhere in the world, he knew how to answer it. And he also knew how to communicate with the angels. He knew how to communicate with the demons. He knew how to communicate with the animals. He understood the way science and astronomy works. The Gemara says he knew everything there was possible to know in the entire world. That was the weakest of the students of Hillel. Says the Gemara, if that was the weakest student, what is left to say about Rabbi Yochanan and Zakkai, who was the greatest student? What was he able to do? What could he do that, Yochanan, that Rabbi Yochanan and Zakkai couldn't? So the Gemara says, you know what? Yonas of Menuziel was so holy, he was so sublime. There was like a fire around him. 
from his levels of spirituality that when a bird would fly in his immediate vicinity, the bird would immediately get scorched, it would get burnt from his extreme degrees of holiness. Okay, so that's the Gemara. Gives us a little bit of a taste of what was going on in the intense classroom of Hilo Hazaki. Okay. Ask the Kutzker an amazing question. Usually, you sign up to learn from a teacher who you think there's something to learn from because obviously the teacher has something to offer you. If you're greater than the teacher and you know more than your teacher, you wouldn't go learn by them. You would be the teacher yourself, correct? That makes sense? So ask the Kutzker, if these are the students of Hillel and they're all coming to his classroom, they're all coming to learn by him, then what is left to say about Hillel? What can you possibly say about Hillel? Why were they coming to learn by him if there was probably nothing left to learn? They knew everything on their own. So what was the greatness of Hillel? Listen to the Kutzker. You know what the answer is, he says? As great as it is that Jonas of Menuzio had such an aura of holiness around him and any bird that came in his immediate vicinity got scorched, you know what the greatness of Hillel himself was? That he had so much holiness, but when a bird came in his immediate vicinity, it did not get burnt. That was the greatness of Hillel. That Hillel knew how to live an integrated life. Hillel knew how to be a sublime human being, but he also knew how to be me'uravim abrios. He knew how to deal with people. He knew that we live in a world where we interact with different facets of our creation, with different facets of this world, and all of them are here for us to take advantage of and to interact with. And therefore, the greatness of Hillel was that he had a full integration, but he was able to do that with Kedusha Tahara. He was able to do it with an understanding of what his goals, what his principles, what his morals were, never compromising on any of them, and bringing himself to be the great person that Hillel Azakin actually was. That is the greatness of Hillel, and that is what we aspire toward. That is what it's all about. That's what is great, and that is why the Talmidim learn by him, which is why some of the Mepharshim point out, when we are introduced to Mordechai in the Megillah, what are we told? What are the first words that were introduced to Mordechai? So Rabbi Yonasan Ibishitz writes, Ishi Hudiyaya Bashushan Abira means there were two different places. There was Shushan and Shushan Abira. So it's like New York State and New York City, just as an example. New York State is New York State. New York City is New York City. There's a lot going on in New York City. Mordechai didn't just live in New York State. He didn't just live in Shushan. He lived in Shushan Abira. He lived in the capital. He lived where everything was going on. He lived by the hustle and bustle. And yet, the Megillah portrays him as Ish Yehudi Haya and he was a great Jew. He figured out how to be a great Jew, living in the midst of everyone, being a part of civilization, being a part of the society. And that is the two dreams of Yosef Hatzali. That's what those dreams mean. He was a complete person. Yosef was made up of so many colors. Yosef had sometimes contradictory colors, but although he was a very complex human being, he also had the ability to then grow and become the great person who he was. And says of Salavachik in the last paragraph, the Jews throughout history have imitated Yosef. We have had two visions. The Jew is a good merchant and he is skillful in his trade. The Jews always dreamt of sheaves. Otherwise, they cannot have survived. But at the same time, the Jew, the small merchant, the grocer, the peddler, the businessman would come home for Shabbos. I knew such people in my childhood, the same Jews sometimes in rags and another time had a dream not of alamos, not of dollars and cents, not of rubles and kopecks, but of something else. He had a dream of the sun, the stars, and the moon, of spiritual greatness. He, had, he was a great spiritual personality. And that is everything that we aspire to be. That's what Shabbos is. It gives us the opportunity to remind ourselves that yes, Sheshes Yamim Masa Hashem, Sheshes Yamim Tabod. We are working all six days of the week and we are aspiring to have great success in those realms of our lives, but we also need to be reminded every week we have another dream. We have another dream. And that second dream is of no less import than the first. So that's what Shabbos is supposed to be. It's our ability to live our own experience of being Yosef, of having that multifaceted life, of having different colors in our lives that are going to push us in the directions that we need to go and to be able to aspire to have the realization of those two dreams. Particularly, when Rav Salavechik talked about women, when he speaks about women, he tries to explain to us exactly what the role of a woman is supposed to be. And says Rav Salavechik, if you look here, 
There is a distinction between a mother and a father's mission within the covenantal community since they represent two different personalities. Father's teaching is basically of intellectual nature. Judaism is to a great extent an intellectual discipline, a method, a system of thought, a hierarchy of values. Of course, we need to be educated. We need to know what the halacha expects of us. What does the Torah say? In order to be acquainted with all the aspects one must study, one must comprehend and acquire knowledge and be familiar at least with the basic principles. Let me confide, it is not too easy a task. The teaching must be strict, exact, and conscientious. If the father cannot accomplish it by himself, he must see to it that his child obtains a necessary instruction. However, it says of Salavechik, our Judaism needs to go so far beyond that. It cannot just be limited to what are the laws? What do I need to do? How much am I going to study? It can't just be that rigid. Judaism is not only an intellectual tradition, but it is also an experiential one as well. The Jew not only observed, but experienced the Shabbos. The Jew experienced Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippurim. He did not only recite prayers on those days. The Seder was not just ceremonial. Of course, you have to eat matzah and marah and dalit kosas and all those things and a seba. Of course, all that is true. And there are times when you need to do it and it has to be finished by chatzah. All of that, the rigidity of the religion, of course, is valuable and important, but it cannot stop there. It has to be more than that. It has to be an experience. There is a beauty, a grandeur, a warmth and a tenderness to Judaism. All these qualities cannot be described in cognitive terms. One may behold them, feel them, sense them. It is impossible to provide one with a formal training in the experiential realm. Experiences are communicated not through the word, but through the steady contact, through association, through osmosis, through a tear or a smile, through dreamy eyes and soft melody, through the silence at twilight and the recital of Shema. All this is to be found in the maternal domain. The mother creates the mood. She is the artist who is responsible for the magnificence, the solemnity, and beauty. She tells the child of the great romance of Judaism. She somehow communicates to him the tremor, the heartbeat of Judaism, while playing, singing, laughing, and crying. I think about this so many times in our experience as Jews. How many people do you know who only observe but do not experience, who have no feeling, who don't have a passion, who don't have an understanding as to what it is that they do? And yes, they follow all the strict letters of the law and they know exactly what they're supposed to do when, but they lack the understanding of what that feeling is supposed to be, of what that experience needs to be. And on the flip side, how many Jews do you know who experience, but also don't actually observe? How many people talk about the feeling of Judaism and what it means to feel Jewish, but after all, they don't say Kriya Shema every day and they don't believe in the Torah and Hashemayim. And they don't have an understanding what the rules actually are, what the expectations are supposed to be. And says of Salavechik, that's what it means, Shema Bani Musar Avicha, Torah And I find we live at a time where it's so easy to get information in our times. Right? We have Google, we have Barilan, we have Otzerah Chachma, we have online forums, we have so many ways of getting things, Safari, whatever, whatever you're going to use, there are so many ways to get information. But the experience of being a Torah Jew is so much bigger than that. You can have all the information of the world, but you just don't know what it means to be a Jew. You don't understand it. You don't understand what the experience of living a Jewish life needs to mean for you. What it can mean for yourself and for your family. And that is so critical, that is so important. The Pasuk and Parshas Vayakel. We know the beginning of Parshas Vayakel, the Torah says, Moshe Rabbeinu gathers in the entire Jewish people. Vayakel Moshe is Kaladas B'nai Yisrael. He gathers everyone in. And what does he tell them? All the laws of Shabbos. The Gemara tells us he tells them all the laws of Shabbos. Okay, so Moshe Rabbeinu does that. At the very end of the first Aliyah, we're told, And the entire Jewish people left from before Moshe. Now ask the Arachayim HaKadosh. It's the second one for the day. Ask the Arachayim HaKadosh there in Parshas Vayakhel. I don't understand. We have class at a certain time. Right? When the class ends, everybody leaves. Correct? I assume none of you sat here since... Tuesday. Everybody left, went to do their things, came back. So if Moshe Rabbeinu, the Pusik starts and says, Vayakel Moshe is Kaladaz ben Yisrael. Moshe Rabbeinu gathers in the entire Jewish people because he wants to give a class. He wants to give a shir. They're all sitting there. Of course, when Moshe Rabbeinu's shir was over, I assume everybody left. So why does the Torah have to say, Vayetzu Kaladaz ben Yisrael milifnei Moshe? Everybody left from the presence of Moshe. Of course they left. What do you think? They sat there glued to their seats for the rest of the year? So why, if we know that every word in the Torah is so carefully measured and is there for a particular reason, 
Why is it that the Torah goes out of its way to teach us this, that everybody left Moshe Rabbeinu Shir. Once it was over, they left. Explains the Arachayim HaKadosh. He gives two interpretations. I think this is what he writes, or maybe it's someone else. He definitely has the question. He has the question. I forgot who gives the answer. He gives two answers. Rebelli Lapiana is safer as one. I don't remember who says what. Here's the suggestion. Imagine you're walking down the street in Manhattan, if you ever dare to do such a thing here, and you bump into someone, or you don't. You chance upon someone who is just walking in the opposite direction. Now, do you have any idea where it is that they're coming from, where it is that they're going? How should I know? Maybe this person is a teller in a bank. Maybe you're going to the library. Maybe you're going to the grocery store. Maybe you're going to pick up your kids from school. Maybe you're going home to have dinner. Maybe you're going to a restaurant. How am I supposed to know? Unless I inquire, unless I talk to that person, I'll have no idea where it is that they're coming from, where it is that they're going to. However, imagine you're walking down the street and it's one o'clock in the morning in the middle of New York City and you chance upon an individual who has drool coming out of his mouth. His undershirt smells and is all wet. There's vomit all over him. And he's struggling to walk in a straight line. He's stumbling over his own shoes. Do you need to ask that person where you're coming from? You don't need to ask. Why? Because it's obvious. You clearly just walked out of a bar. It's clear that you just had an experience that was so negatively impactful to you that it's written all over your face. You don't need to say anything. We don't need to have a conversation with you. We know exactly where you came from. We know to stay away from you because we know what your story is. Without having any words of conversation with that individual, we can say everything about what just happened. Says the Arachayim HaKadosh. That's what it means. When you went to a class to a shir given by Moshe Rabbeinu, it's not just that you sat there. It's at the end, When you left, if somebody bumped into you on the street, they didn't have to ask you where you came from. It was written all over you. They saw the experience of being elevated by Moshe Rabbeinu's presence was something that was so profoundly impactful to you. It was something that they didn't have to ask. Once the Jewish people left, everybody knew immediately it was Milifnei Moshe. Everybody knew, oh, you just came from Moshe Rabbeinu's house because otherwise you wouldn't look like this. There's no way you would be so transformed. But that is what the experience, the enriching, transformative experience that Torah learning can have for all of us. That's what it can do. It can transform all of us. It can make us better people. The Torah is nimshel al-edvash. Right, we're told. The Medrash tells us that the Torah is in some way considered synonymous to dvash. Misukim edvash v'nofes tufim, the Torah says. The Torah is considered to be sweeter than honey. It's a big question the Chavetz Chaim asks. Why is it sweeter than honey? It should be the same as honey. Chavetz Chaim says the reason why is because at some point, if you have too much honey, it's not sweet anymore. It's gross. But if you learn Torah, it's better than honey. Because the more and more you learn, the more and more you change, the more and more you grow... And it never becomes something that you're displeased by if you really learn it seriously and if you understand what the experience is. But beyond that, we know, based on the Rishonim, that Dvash has the ability to transform something. The Gemara and the Rishonim, Rabbi Yonah, talks about if something falls into Dvash, so do we have to assume, let's say, something non-kosher falls into Dvash. A non-kosher little piece of meat falls into a big vat of honey. Do we have to assume that the whole honey becomes not kosher or do you assume something else happens? And the Rishonim write, what happens is the dvash, the honey is so potent, it is able to overtake anything that may fall into it. So even if a little bit of non-kosher food falls into the honey, we would assume the honey is kosher. That is why there's no prohibition of dvash akum. We have a prohibition of chalav akum, of bishal akum. When a non-Jew handles our food, we have to be concerned. Maybe there's something non-kosher in it. When it comes to honey, you don't need to have ashkach on the honey because we assume that the honey is going to be kosher because even if something fell into it, it doesn't really matter because it will be transformed by the honey. That, say some of the Mepharshim, is what it means that the Torah is like honey. That the Torah has the ability to transform us, to make us different kinds of people. By the way, what's the gematria of Devash? Isha. Isha. A woman has the ability to transform her husband, to transform her family, to transform her whole home, to build something special. 
That's what the gematria of Isha and Devash is the same, because you have the ability. You ever wonder why people call each other honey? Right? You think it's funny. You know that Rabbi Yashiv actually writes that in his Sefer? Isha is the gematria Devash because of that, and he says that's why. The Minika Olam is that husbands call their wives honey. Interesting. It's not because they're so sweet. Not every wife is so sweet. The reason why is because they understand that the power of a woman is that she can change, transform an entire house, and give the experience of what a Jewish home is really meant to be. So, in probably one of the most famous writings of Rav Soloveitchik, he gives a hesped of his machatenister, which I've come to understand there is no English word for that, right? Lukutanen, correct? There is no English word. I think we need to petition Webster that there should be an English word, but the truth is, in other cultures, it doesn't mean anything. They have no relationship. After their kids get married, that's it. I don't know. But in our community, in our culture, it is something that is very powerful. There is a relationship between those individuals whose children marry each other. So Rav Soloveitchik gave a tribute to the Rebetzin of Talna, who was his machatenister, who was his machutin. And when she passed away, he wrote about what does it mean to be a mother? So he writes the following. This is at the end of the second sheet, number four. I admit that I am not able to define precisely the Masoretic role of the Jewish mother. Only by circumscription, I hope to be able to explain it, permit me to draw upon my own experiences. I used to have long conversations with my mother. In fact, it was a monologue rather than a dialogue. She talked, and I happened to overhear. But what did she talk about? I must use a halachic term in order to answer this question. She talked me in Yana Diyoma. I used to watch her arranging the house in honor of the holiday. I used to see her recite prayers. I used to watch her recite the cetera every Friday night. Imagine. Is there anyone in this room, myself included? I have never seen my mother be mom or cetera. She's, she's a great woman. Doesn't go over the Parsha. Have any of you ever seen your mothers go over the Parsha every Friday night? You do? Amazing. I gotta meet her. That's nothing to be embarrassed about. It's amazing. So if Salavechik writes, used to sit there on Friday nights, I think about this often. What images are my children going to have of me growing up? What are they going to have images of me doing on Friday nights? Falling asleep at the table? Because I'm so exhausted from everything I did during the week? What images are they going to have? Are they going to give a description like this? Are they going to say, we remember our father, we remember our mother doing this on Friday night, preparing for Shabbos, this is what it looked like? Or are they going to say, we remember that on Friday afternoon... Our mother was too busy doing whatever she was doing. She was never prepared for Shabbos. Shabbos was the worst time of the week for us because there was so much stress in the house and my father showed up three minutes before lift benching and he couldn't even take a shower before he went to shul. And he always showed up in the parking lot of shul after it was already closed. We had to get the security guard to come open it up. I did have a child who once told me that, that every week his father comes to shul and they have to open up the, uh, the security has to open up the parking lot. These are the memories. We've got to realize. These are the memories that our children are going to have of us. What do we want our children to remember? So Salavechik says, I remember that my mother used to go over the cedra every week, and I still remember the nostalgic tune. I learned from her very much. Most of all, I learned that Judaism expresses itself not only in formal compliance with the law, but also in a living experience. What did his mother teach him? His mother taught him the flavor, the scent, and the warmth of mitzvahs. I learned from her the most important thing in life, to feel the presence of the Almighty and the gentle pressure of His hand resting upon my frail shoulders. Without her teaching, which quite often were transmitted to me in silence, I would have grown up a soulless being, dry and insensitive. That is a very powerful statement. Of Salavechik went through all of Shas with his father. But he said there was something lacking with the experience that he had with his father. His father didn't give him everything. His father gave him a lot of the intellect that he had. His father gave him a lot of the understanding into the sugyas of Shas, into the halacha. But beyond that, Rav said, without his mother's infusion into his life, he would have been a soulless, dry, and insensitive human being. The laws of Shabbos, for instance, were passed on to me by my father. They are part of Musa Ravicha, but the Shabbos as a living entity, as a queen, was revealed to me by my mother. It is a part of the Torah Simecha. The fathers knew much about Shabbos, but the mothers lived Shabbos. They experienced her presence and they perceived her beauty and splendor. The fathers taught generations how to observe Shabbos, but the mothers taught generations how to greet the Shabbos and how to enjoy her 24-hour presence. We know in Parshish Kisetze, the Torah says that there's an institution of a ben Sorer What is the ben Sorer A very strange story where we have a young child who's just bar mitzvah. Right after he turns bar mitzvah and he is caught doing things that he shouldn't do, he's stealing money, he's being... 
you know, overly excessive in his spending habits and his eating habits. And the Torah says in such a situation, in a very rare circumstance, we're told that he has to come, be brought into the basin by his parents, and he is subject to the death penalty, which is a very severe punishment. Which is why the Gemara says that Ben Sorimor is perhaps one of the areas of Torah, Shalohaya Velo Asadios. The story never happened and it never will happen. Because the specifics of the circumstances are so, um, are so particular, it is almost impossible that it could ever happen. Okay, but we do have such a story. And in the context of that story, we are told the boy is brought into the Beisdin. He's brought up to the Beisdin Agadol in Yerushalayim. And he's told, you know, you've done something wrong. This child doesn't listen to the Kol Aviv The simple understanding is he doesn't listen to his parents. Some of Farshim say what it means is the reason why this child got to the place where he is is because a nenu shamea bekol aliv uvekol imo. It's not because he doesn't listen to his parents, but it's because his parents are not communicating. It's because he has no vision of what role models of parents are supposed to be. It's because his parents are telling him, we want you to learn, we want you to study, we want you to excel, and then he comes home and he sees, my parents do everything other than that. My parents don't spend their time wisely, so why should I? The reason why he got to the place where he is is because a nenu shomea bikol aviv mo. He doesn't hear the reverberating voices of his parents in the home, and he doesn't have that feeling. He doesn't have that understanding of what a Jewish life is meant to be. And that's how he got himself to the place of being a ben sorer I'll close with one final medrash in the beginning of Parshas Vayikra. The Torah tells us that Moshe Rabbeinu was very reluctant to take upon himself the mantle of leadership. He really did not want it. He felt he's not the right choice, he's not the right person, he's a kavad peh, he's a kavad lashon, he has some speech impediment. It's not for me. I don't want to do this. In the end, the Medrash says Moshe Rabbeinu was mitvakeach. He argued with the Rebona Shalom for seven days straight by the Sneh as to whether or not he's going to save the Jewish people from Mitzrayim, from Egypt, or he's going to have someone else do it instead of him. In the end, HaKadosh Baruch Hu says to him, listen, let's stop fighting because I'm going to win in the end. I want you to go. I'm God. You're going to go. So stop fighting. Let's just figure this out. Go. So he goes. But the Medrash says, even when he went, he was Barach Min Hasrara. He was so reluctant. He was so uncomfortable to do it. So HaKadosh Baruch Hu says to him, I have a job for you. Your first job is, I want you to go into Paro. I want you to start negotiating with him. Moshe Rabbeinu goes in and he negotiates and then HaKadosh Baruch Hu says to him, okay, you're not finished. You're going to go back again, back again, back again. Keeps going back and forth. Moshe Rabbeinu says, okay, now I retire. I did my job. I was very uncomfortable, out of my comfort zone. I did what you wanted. HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, no, you're not done yet. Now, you're going to take the Jewish people out of Mitzrayim. It wasn't enough that you negotiated with Baruch. Now you're going to take the Jewish people out of Mitzrayim. Moshe says, okay, that's what you want. I'm not going to fight with you. Moshe Rabbeinu goes he performs Kriyas Yamsuf, he does all the great miracles, and then he says, okay, God, I'm retiring, okay? I've done enough. He rebounds Shalom turns to him and says, what? You think you're done? You're not done yet. The Jewish people need food. They need man. They need a be'er. They need an aneyakavu. They need everything. Forty years, Moshe Rabbeinu is leading the Jewish people, doing something that he's so uncomfortable doing. It's not his nature. He doesn't want to do it. So now, at the end of his career, Moshe Rabbeinu, the end of his career, he's 119 years old, and he's writing his resume, or he's writing his autobiography. There's a lot to say about himself. I've had a pretty, uh, pretty successful life, no? It's been pretty good. So, says the Medrash, what can Moshe Rabbeinu say about himself? Libasof. Not only did I negotiate with Paro and get all of you out of there, Moshe Rabbeinu builds the Mishkan. He did everything. What more can a Jew want to accomplish in life than what Moshe Rabbeinu already did. Moshe Rabbeinu turns to HaKadosh Baruch Hu at this moment of his life and he says, okay, I'm retiring. I did everything in the world. I didn't want to do this in the first place, but I did it for you. Now I've had enough. I'm retiring. HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, you're retiring? Now, says the Madrash, Chayecha, I promise you. I have a job that is more important, that is more difficult than anything you've done until now. Can you imagine? What could be more complicated than what I've already done? Listen to this. Now your job, says the Medrash, is 
Now your job, after everything you've accomplished, you have the most difficult job, which is to teach the Jewish people how to live lives of self-control. How to live lives where they know how to discern between Tumah and Tahara. Between Kodesh and Chol. Between Kodesh and Kodesh. That is the greatest challenge of Moshe Rabbeinu's life. Splitting the Yamsuf is small talk. Bringing the man, having a be'er, anani akavad, not a big deal. Teaching the Jewish people how to live a life infused with Jewish values, how to live a life of self-control, how to live a life of discernment, of understanding where our priorities are, a life of synthesizing both of those dreams of Yosef and knowing how to make sure that they don't clash with each other, how to make sure that we have the opportunity to live lives where we take heroic steps to protect our children, to try and help our children. We provide our kids with Hanani HaKavod. We provide our kids with Man and Be'er. We work very hard to be able to sustain them and take care of our families. But do we do something more than that? Do we make sure that our children and our families also have the opportunity not only to be protected, not only to be provided for, but beyond that, to take on the job of Moshe Rabbeinu, which was beyond that expectation? What was the next obligation of Moshe Rabbeinu? And that is the job that all of us have the opportunity to take on ourselves as well. To teach by example. To live life by example. To live by those dreams of Yosef HaTzadik. To look for great ambitious successes in whatever field we choose to go into. But also to make sure that we have great successes in the field of our spiritual aspirations as well. And that's something sometimes that gets lost in the journey of life. It's hard, it's hard to focus on everything. And it's hard to give our attention equally to both of those dreams. But as we know, the Jewish people are told that we are kekoch ve'ashamayim ve'kachol asher asvasayam. Rav Asher Weiss once told me maybe what it means is, kol asher asvasayam is something that we interact with all the time. Koch ve'ashamayim is the aspiration of a Jew that's very far away. So yes, we are very practical people. We make sure to do whatever we can to have and lead a practical life. But at the same time, we also always have our minds and our hearts and our dreams toward the Kochli HaShamayim because we do have the ability to build that kind of framework in all of our lives. And it's not easy, but it's our most important job as adults, as mothers, as parents, as grandparents, as aunts, as siblings, and as educators to try to infuse, to try to give over the values, but to try to live those values, to try to show all those around us that we can do it, that we could be the kinds of people that have Sheshesimei but who also have a Shabbos in the middle where we have the ability to infuse and to synthesize both of our dreams, both of our worlds, and to have them coming together in harmony in the Ksonos Pasim that we wear. So I think